This is Herbert from Mario Rome's Interzone. We're super happy you choose one of our songs for your signation and we're big fans of the show, so congrats on that. Okay, there's a thing. We got a new album coming out. It's called Eternal Fiction. It's gonna be amazing. Anybody out there wants to support that album, which is gonna be amazing. It's really easy. You just go to mr-interzone.at and there's a link for a We Make It campaign and there you can pre-order the album or pre-order some package and we've got lots of fun things, great stuff there and we appreciate your love. We want to love you back and... Yeah, that's it for now. All the best from Vienna. Bye. Wow. Well, that has cheered me up. No end. A new album coming out from one of the best jazz bands on the scene today. So freaking excited. Cheers, lads. Some good news for a change on what is it? Uh, COVID quarantine day 101. How are you all holding up? Are you still baking bread? Or have you joined the revolution? Maybe a bit of both. I mean, they're not mutually exclusive activities, although probably not at the same time. Unless I'm missing out on a whole new level of crossover with people making caltrop cakes at protests to scatter uh, before the wheels of cars attempting to plough into crowds of protesters. It's probably a whole TikTok stream on it. Nothing would surprise me these days. So I guess everywhere's starting to open up a little bit more now. I hope you're handling it okay. I hope you're keeping safe, uh, but doing what you need to do. I mean, we're still managing to keep uh, pretty secluded. Uh, We've got a couple of uh, camping trips planned, but I've read that camping is considered low risk since it's uh, you're all outside. And we're going to be vigilant on not getting too close to other people, even while we're outside. So so I think the risk for us is going to be uh, pretty low. We know we're lucky enough to be able to do that. Although, you know, the pressure to start uh, seeing friends and going out to restaurants is uh, immense. But infections are starting to rise again in some places uh, following uh, Memorial Day when a lot of people decided they were done with face masks and social distancing. And now we've got the protests um, that are everywhere following the murder of George Floyd, uh, which is looking like the straw that has finally broke the camel's back. Tragic. But great to see that people are finally sick of this shit and are hitting the streets en masse to tackle white structural racism head on. You know, I was getting a little depressed about the size of the protest crowds down in uh, D.C. where I live. 
um, around impeachment and, uh, well, you know, the fire alarm Fridays and, and, and stuff that's been going on. It's kind of like, felt like, you know, the resistance was ebbing, you know, never really hit the heights of the Women's March, even though there's been many more, many more things that I feel uh, should have been triggers for massed civil unrest. But it's happening now. Big changes are needed. And it's going to be a long journey ahead of us uh, with constant pressure and civil disobedience needed on all fronts. Uh, the police needs to be reformed and defunded. I mean, seriously, look at the, the numbers and money that they get and soak up and the utter lack of accountability that they face uh, as they're proven time and time again to be incapable of protecting and serving the population. I mean, seriously, they've totally lost their way to say it as nicely as I can, even though I've seen footage of them in the 60s physically manning the barricades put up to prevent civil rights and desegregation shoulder to shoulder with the KKK. I mean, I'm starting to wonder, did they ever truly earn their uh, hero status? Have they not always been hired bullies for the rich against the poor? I mean, they don't come off well if you read Kerouac or Jack London or, or many of the old writers. And their history, a lot of the first police departments in this country uh, grew out of the slave catchers and the union busters, the Pinkertons, a, a, a for-profit hired militia uh, for the rich. So, I don't know, I'm going to need to do more research. But it's very hard uh, watching peaceful protests um, enacting their First Amendment rights being tear-gassed uh, without provocation from armed police guys dressed up uh, like Avengers. And then you look at the finances, the massive disparity in what they are paid and what they actually do. Uh, particularly in light of how our schools and infrastructure and hospitals and other social services are funded. So, uh, it's been about 16 days or so of constant protests, and there's been some interesting symbolic gains already. Uh, some arrests of killer policemen. And lots of Confederate slave master statues have been brought down. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, hand-wringing from neoliberals who are pledging uh, to now recognize their own white privilege and white fragility. I mean, the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list at the moment is uh, full of titles that would not be out of place on a course listening for ethnic studies degrees at universities. And then there's, you know, the Netflix and Amazon video streaming portals. The opening pages are prominently displaying uh, Black Lives Matter streaming collections. It's, it's great. It's still, I would say, only symbolic at the moment. The cops who killed Breonna Taylor are still walking free. And, you know, they're all still going to be eligible for their million-dollar pensions for bursting into a house on an innocent woman and shooting her in her bed. And cops are still tear-gassing peaceful protesters and marching over old men like stormtroopers, like that bunch of them in Buffalo. And, you know, the news is they're getting tired, soaking up all the overtime and want the National Guard to take over because, of course, they are massively outnumbered by the rest of us. And now, you know, they're generally hated and distrusted everyway because they forgot 
who they are supposed to serve and how they are supposed to do it. Black Lives Matter, defund the police. So yeah, it looks like the big quarantine progression story of 2020 is everyone's depressed at home. Uh, then uh, everyone starts uh, baking bread and posting pictures on social media. And then uh, revolution. <laughs> Can't wait to see what happens next. What else? I'm reviewing Bob Dylan's theme time radio today with my friend Bill Smith. Bill's great. He co-hosts with Confetti on Our Hair, the Tom Waits podcast I reviewed in episode 12. And we've become friends since then. He's one of those uh, super people who are always looking to talk about and share music and art and books. And this is actually one of his favorite podcasts. So I'm glad uh, that he's agreed to come on the show and help me review it. I'm a pretty big Bob Dylan fan. Uh, and actually, he's just got a new album out uh, today. Um, it's called Rough and Rowdy Ways. Uh, he's released a few tracks of it already in March, kind of at the start of the quarantine. Um, you can hear them on YouTube and Spotify. One is called I Contain Multitudes, and the other one is uh, this 17-minute epic rhyming ballad about the assassination of JFK called Murder Most Foul. I'm a fan. Um, you know, I, ha I haven't... I haven't gone near the last few albums he's put out, to be honest, because he's been uh, on this kick of recording and performing Frank Sinatra songs these past few years, and it's you know it's not really been quite my bag. You could almost argue, actually, that Dylan has become a cover act of his own material in a way. Um, his performances over the last twenty years have been marked by him changing his well-loved classics into sometimes unrecognizable material on stage. But maybe, from the sound of these new tracks, maybe this new album of material is going to be more in my line. It certainly sounds like it could be. It's more back to the greatness of Time Out of Mind or the classic uh, heyday albums of Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks. There's definitely a commonality, I think, amongst many Dylan fans, I find. And it comes down to people who really like Dylan put an appreciation of his lyrics first and foremost... And I also know a lot of people who don't particularly like Dylan, and it's often it's just his voice that turns them off, or it's a combination of the voice along with the uh, impenetrable barrage-type complexity of his wordplay that, that can overwhelm some people. Kerouac once had an argument with a friend, uh, Gregory Corso, um, who preferred Shelley to Shakespeare and uh, Jack wrote to him that Shakespeare is a continent while Shelley is a village and I think that's how I feel about Dylan and how I compare him to others. For sure it's a continent not without its deserts and strip malls perhaps but it's vast and full of secrets and surprises, forests and palaces and it's people with every kind of lost soul and earnest seeker that's ever crawled and kicked its way out of the human psyche. I know I'm not alone in this opinion. I mean, he did win the Nobel Prize for Literature after all. They don't give those away with Starbucks reward points. So I've got a few Dylan stories I can share. Um, I've never met him, 
and I've only seen him perform three times, but there are moments in my life where his work has had impact and meaning. But I think today I should probably tell the one story that I think most people will find interesting. Now, this is something I haven't told many people, but um, the thing is, I was very fortunate to uncover something about Dylan's early time in New York in the 60s. You see, I discovered who the tambourine man actually was. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there's no place I'm going to. One of his uh, first big breakout hits, without which there would never probably have been a Nobel Prize. So it was 1996. It was my first time in New York City and I was staying at the Chelsea Hotel. It's such a greatly storied place that I was very surprised to discover that anyone could actually stay there. And it wasn't actually too expensive compared to everywhere else in Manhattan. In fact, it was amongst the cheapest hotels in New York City. You could get a room in 96 for about $45. And, you know, the place was run down and the heating was uh, hit and miss in some places. But, I mean, wow, this was the Chelsea. Is there a more storied hotel in the world? I don't think so. I mean, most of the great artists of the 20th century have passed through its doors. And it was kind of like a mecca for me, really. And to be allowed to sleep in the place was incredible. I'm sure you know some of its history. All the beat guys stayed there, of course. And great writers, uh, artists, everyone from Mark Twain to Andy Warhol. All the musicians, Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, Edith Piaf, Chet Baker, Tom Waits, Madonna. It was in the Chelsea that Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2001 with Stanley Kubrick. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It was in the Chelsea where William Burroughs bashed out the first draft of The Naked Lunch. I took a fix and went to sleep in the back seat. Writers liked the place because it was cheap and had really good thick walls that squashed out the sound of their typewriters. So they would get complaints at uh, three o'clock in the morning when they were chewing up the fifth tab of Benzedrine and bashing out some stream of consciousness. Like a vampire bat, he gives off a narcotic effluvium, a dying green mist that anesthetizes his victims and renders them helpless in his enveloping presence. Musicians liked it, again, because it was cheap and it was also close to the bohemian action and life and drugs of the village. The Chelsea was where Dylan Thomas was staying when he died. And death shall have no dominion. Uh, he'd been in town to record a reading of uh, Under Milkwood. The Chelsea, wow. I wish you could stay there now. I wish you could see inside. You know, the history just kind of soaks out of the walls. I don't believe in ghosts, I, but there's some places that just hold uh, kind of an echo. I remember you well in the Chelsea Hotel. 
the foyer and hallways and the great staircase at the middle of the building are just filled with the most incredible hodgepodge of art on the walls. I mean, because so many great artists stayed there, visual artists, Diego Rivera, Clay Zolzberg, Cartier Bresson, Jasper Johns, De Kooning, Robert Crumb, Robert Maplethorpe, who was of course sharing room uh, 1017 with Patti Smith, who would hop over into Sam Shepard's room to write the play Cowboy Mouth with him. I'm not sure, but I bet Dylan stayed there. But it was also a regular, slightly run-down hippie place with regular tenants and famous tenants and dope dealers all living together as neighbours with the thick walls where you could play loud music and smoke pot and not get kicked out. Pretty much the exact opposite of the hideous, ever-gouging, air-conditioned nightmare of our all-pervasive Marriott culture as Henry Miller wanders about in 1939. So the room that I stayed in wasn't one of the storied rooms of the greats. It wasn't recorded by the guys at the desk as having ever had anyone famous in it, and I did ask. It was not where Leonard Cohen wrote Hallelujah, or where Sid killed Nancy, or where Eve's client conceived of the void. But, as I went on to find out, someone I consider as important as all of them did stay there. The tambourine man stayed there. The actual tambourine man. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. 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 It was a small dark room with an ancient hot plate in one corner and a toilet and a sink in a cupboard on the other side. Um, yeah, New York apartments. It's a human ant colony, really. And this, this one was uh, so small and dark, and the heating. Uh, was just provided by the exposed giant pipes that carried the heating to other bigger and better rooms up above me. There was one picture on the wall, a uh, pop art Roy Lichtenstein Andy Warhol imitation piece of a frog saying uh, croak, um, but the speech bubble coming out of his mouth was uh, written in the Coca-Cola font and uh, underneath it was a shelf and I put a lot of stuff on there because it was a small room and, and you know I was 21 so there was a carton of cigarettes on there and some rolling papers and a bottle of scotch and it was a thrilling time for me you know a New York City virgin you know 21 years old in the Chelsea and I was writing in my journals and pacing up and down in the room just buzzing on everything that was happening every day and, and excited about the few weeks that I had ahead of me in New York just, just full of potential discoveries and somehow um, in a head rush writing and drinking and smoking and pacing and writing and drinking in that hot little room I knocked the painting off the wall and smashed the ashtray and as I was cleaning everything up I found a letter that had been tucked up inside the frame behind the picture it was an old and dusty letter and uh, and I was excited as I sat down on the bed to read it. Farewell, cruel world. Is that how you're supposed to write these things? That damn guitar kid would probably write, Fare thee well, damn phony. Damn that fake, phony, hobo, guitar man. Damn 
damn and triple damn that crazy good-for-nothing Robert Zimmerman. He won't even tell you his real name. He has This Machine Kills Fascist scrolled on his guitar, copying Woody Guthrie. We all know that. But if he's after fascists, why is he chasing me all around town? Me? I got nothing. I'm just a lonely tambourine player. Hey, Judge. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Hounding me from dawn till dusk. Screaming about he's gonna follow me through the jingle jangle morning. Had to wrap my tambourine up in my coat to shake him off. But somehow, somehow he always finds me. In the jingle jangle morning, I come following you. I couldn't believe my eyes. What the hell had I found? The date in the corner said April 1965, and the writing was old and shaky and written in black ink, like spider scroll. Pretends to kill fascists, but he's really killing me. Killing me with his insane praise. High falutin demands. Mockery is what it is. Although he had me for a little while, I thought, hey, here's a kid who really gets it. The old rattle and shake. Pure and innocent, like William Blake. And sure, I'm good. I can play most anything for a dime if you've got the dime. But being ready to fade into your own parade, to cast your dancing spell your way and promise to go under it? Damn, kid. Leave me alone. I don't cast no spells. I should call the cops. This is harassment is what it is, though it does sound like praise and adulation at first, you sneaky, patronizing asshole. Quit following me. I got nothing left for you. You've built a pyramid of praise and entombed me inside it. Quite a trick for such a callow-looking youth. Go see Fox the washboard player up in Harlem. Go slide down his washboard bridge of time searching for the origins of wine or some such bullcrap but give me a break kid please make it out like i'm beethoven or jungle train i'm just a tambourine man not a cross between michelangelo and gandalf take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind are you on drugs you really are burning my biscuits go do your drugs i'm not stopping you but please leave me alone I'm just a tambourine man, playing for spare change on the village corner, outside the clubs, but now you have all the corners and all the clubs. You've made me a shadow that you're seeing that I'm chasing. I'll show you who's circled by the circus sands. I'll cast my memory and fade deep beneath the waves. Goodbye, cruel world. Is this how you're supposed to end these things? And it was signed, William Byron Bird, the tambourine man. So in 96, 21 years old, fresh out of university, a journalism graduate, and here I was, given a story it would seem. And I felt like I'd caught a big one, in the Chelsea Hotel no less. So the next day I went to work. Uh, I went to the newspaper archives of the Times, 
spent, you know, a couple of days there, found nothing. Then I tried the village voice, and they were really nice and encouraging, but uh, a little skeptical of me. And, you know, their archives were an utter mess. And the people that they introduced me to and sent me to talked to old timers from uh, Chelsea and Greenwich who might have known something about it. Um, you know, didn't really have anything to say. Um, just general conversations about the era, but nothing particularly about a, a, a tambourine busker. So I, I, you know, I wasted a few days. It, it was fun, um, but I didn't really know what I was looking for, or even if the letter was authentic. And I eventually began to feel like I didn't want to waste my time on a wild goose chase. So I started, you know, stepping out a bit more and doing other things, you know. Uh, spending a bit of time becoming a re regular at Rips Wallies, um, seeing the sights, hitting the jazz clubs. I kept the letter, and from time to time, um, I think of some new way of trying to authenticate it, find out if there was any truth to it. Of course, I read all the books and the letters about the 60s scene in New York and about the art and the performance. Um, my eyes roving past all the photographs of Ginsburg and Dylan uh, to the street corners behind them looking for a tambourine man wondering and then in 2008 there was this new archive that came out with new material from the time that had finally been put online and I found something a brief two paragraph obituary that blew the whole thing wide open it's review. Smith now. He has this great podcast that I told you about before. Uh, it's called uh, With Confetti in Our Hair. It's beautiful, shriny builds to the music of Tom Waits. It's really good. Check it out if you haven't already. Andy! Hey! Bill, how you doing, man? Good, mate. How are you? I'm very good. You know, hanging in there. How, how are you dealing with COVID down there in the Smoky Mountains? Well, they've got me back to work, so I'm out amongst the throngs and not I'm a little nervous. I'm in the high risk group, uh, and uh, they're taking extraordinary precautions in our theater. But everybody thronging the streets are driving me nuts because I was seriously sequestered. We've reblocked the show, and uh, everybody's six feet apart and staying 15 feet away from the uh, audience. And uh, I, I will not go out in the front of the house. So. Uh, I'm fairly safe, except all these other people that are out in front of the house are exposed to unmasked people eating dinner. And then they come back and they're with me. So I'm yeah. kind of nervous. Yeah. Had a couple of panic attacks, but I'm soldiering through. Wow. Hopefully this is not the last recording I'll ever make. <laughs> that's how I'm doing. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, that's where we're at, isn't it? It's kind of like. Is it safe? Not really, but we're doing it. They're doing it crazy in the Smoky Mountains. Yeah, man. What's the show? 
Uh, the Hatfield and McCoy dinner feud. I play the mayor, who's uh, the antagonist of the show, two days a week, and I play Pa Hatfield two days a week. Nice. It holds about 700 people, but we're at half capacity. They've got like 320 seats or something in there. And uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it is a really fun show with special effects put in there by. Um, Mirage from Las Vegas, oh, and cool. uh, now we're part of Dolly Parton's uh, show company. Uh, that happened last year, so there's been some changes. But all in all, great experience for anybody. Nothing like you would expect. We don't kill anybody. It's <laughs> not a drama, uh, or at least not a, uh, <laughs> what is it I say when I go out and market? This is not a historical drama, folks. It's a hysterical drama. <laughs> So, I know you love this show, Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio. You bet I do. Oddly enough, I've heard the entire 102 episodes eight and a half times. Whoa! (laughs) So I'm kind of familiar. I uh, have a little driving job on the side that I do, and uh, passengers are involved. And I decided this is fantastic. I love it. And I'll use that as my background music in the car and rarely am i asked to turn it off (laughs) right so did you start listening to it when it was on sirius radio satellite radio no we did an episode and the episode was uh on bob dylan's influence on tom waits Mm -hmm. and uh there's uh, some recordings out there from the podcast or from they made it into a podcast. I didn't even know that, but there were some recordings I had heard on the internet of Tom sending cassette tapes to Bob for the show. I hear your subjects birds, Bob. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so Bob would play those. And, um, that was kind of what got me interested. And we played those on the podcast and then I thought, well, I want to hear this. I wonder where I can hear the show. And then I just looked it up on my podcast app. Oh, it's a podcast. Great. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible. I did hear a couple back in like 2006 when I was living in San Diego. We bought a new car and they gave us like three months of satellite radio. And I just happened to like find it. And I was like, this is amazing. And then it, it, was, it was at such an odd time, though, because... I don't know, serious, they make some odd decisions, like they just lock something into like East Coast time. So when I was like, you know, driving rush hour on the West Coast, there was nothing on that was any good, but it was kind of like played rush hour on East Coast. So it's like, you know, six hours later or something. It was, it was just not perfectly timed. So I never found that much of it. So to come back to it and find that it's been, you know, the entire run is now available as a podcast is just incredible. And it is an incredible phenomena in itself. It's, uh, you know, such a broadening of my own musical horizon, things that I never would have listened to, you know, old yeah. and new. Yeah. Some I would have never had a chance to hear. And so many other things that I've completely ignored or had no knowledge of, just not, you know, if somebody had played it for me, I would have loved it just as much, albeit they aren't Bob Dylan. But who knew he was so hilarious? Yeah, right. Oh, my god! I mean, episodes span, so uh, for people who haven't listened to it, it's kind of like it's uh, it's theme time radio. So he basically does an hour show uh, on a theme, 
you know, the themes can be anything from, you know, birds to traveling to love to, uh, you know, my own favorite is rich man, poor man episode. Yes. And within that theme, um, you know, he, he kind of plays a, a selection of, of incredibly uh, eclectic records, some very obscure, some you kind of know that fit within the theme. And it's incredible because you get uh, strange little quotes on the theme. He reads poetry. He tells jokes. And, <laughs> you know, and it's a musical education, like you were saying. It sure is. My very favorite one was the classic rock episode that he promotes for like two or three episodes before. We've been getting lots of emails. We're going to do one on classic rock. <laughs> and it comes on and every song is about rocks or stones or by the stones, or <laughs> that's what he does. There's really no classic rock on there. He does one on state, different states. Tennessee, of course, has one. I like that one. Um, Did he play the? Is that the one where he plays that haunting Knoxville murder yes. murder ballad? Yes, Knoxville Girl, which oh. I was not familiar with. That was just another thing that I had never heard. And I came to work. I play, I, I work with all these bluegrass musicians. I says, do you know the song Knoxville Girl? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I found just some amazing artists and songs on there, which I had didn't take the time to write down here. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, it's everything. You know, blues, gospel, there's modern stuff in there. And, of course... You know, he plays a fair bit of Tom Waits as well, right? He plays quite a bit of Tom Waits. I believe there's about 12. I started making a list. Mm-hmm. And there's at least 12. Right. And there may be more. And I thought, I better, just for my own reference, because I've turned into the Tom Waits nerd that I am, which didn't happen until we started the podcast. I was just a fan, and now I'm a geek. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, he plays all kinds of stuff on there, and his in, uh, introductions to him are always amazing. And the the Tom Waits cassette messages. He's in five episodes, and we played them all that were all on this one YouTube video that's out there, right? Yeah. And um, on the Bob Dylan episode in our show, you can uh, hear them. And so he he's done that. Not with anybody else. He's had other people on. Oh, I ran into so-and-so at the gym or the yeah. store or on the golf course, and there's a little recording of him talking with someone. But those cassettes from Tom were unique. Were definitely unique. Yeah, he does. Occasionally, he will take emails from people as well and read them out. There was one on the Rich Man Poor Man episode, which kind of like piqued my interest. It was like an email from uh, Alan Dershowitz, the, mm-hmm. the lawyer. And, you yeah. know, I was like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, you know, this is the, the guy who's friends with Epstein and defended him and Weinstein and Trump and just got Trump off impeachment. He's like a fan of Dylan's, you know, the classic <laughs> kind of thing. It's kind of a bit head spinning. But then I kind of like listening to that episode. He definitely, Bob does kind of then go into a soft kind of preachy kind of mode and drops in a Confucius quote, uh, which yep. is kind of sweet, you know. In the, I think it's like, in the, the country of the well-governed, poverty is something to be ashamed of. In the country of the badly governed, wealth is something to be ashamed of. Mm. Yeah, so it's like a lot of stuff like that. It flies at you, and there's a humor, and the music, like we say, is just incredible. There's always, at least, I think, you know, I've probably listened to about 50 episodes, and I always come away with a list of at least three or four songs that I need to, like, check out. Yep, I've uh, 
added to my rabbit holes considerably and used them. I make little videos for friends and uh, have been, some song will uh, remind me of that person and I'll send it to them, just a link. I get it all from there. Hey, you should perform this or this reminds me of you. Nice. You know this song? Yeah, a lot of stuff off that. Um, and, you know, Bob's not so much of a protester most of the time. Yeah. These days, I mean, he gave it up as a full-time thing. If you've ever seen him in concert, I've seen him six times. Oh, wow. He's uh, he's always the sound of his last album, which are very diverse. That's kind of like what he's doing with all of his songs at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, the very first concert I went, and it was at every single concert, people yelling, play something we know. <laughs> and, I, and I'd go, that was the blue, uh, something yeah. in blue. He tangled uh, up in blue, but he's tangled put, up in blue. But he's, he's using, but he's that. using a marimba, and he's changed <laughs> yeah. the lyrics, and he's embarrassed about being in a topless bar, so he mumbled that line. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> yeah. he's uh, amazing like that, and he's on that never-ending tour. Yeah, and I watched uh, the Scorsese documentary during this lockdown. Oh and, wow, uh, that's saw- fabulous, isn't it? It really is. And then there was another documentary that just came out this. Uh, Fall, I think there was a John Lennon one and a Dylan one that was released where he was touring with a sort of all-star band. Um, yeah, the Rolling Thunder. Yeah, oh, that's an amazing documentary. It's incredible because I'd, I'd heard that by the end, you know, he started out that tour and it's kind of like a real cabaret kind of like uh, Ken Kesey on the bus kind of vibe happening. They're just mm-hmm. hitting all these places, and you know, and he has this all-star cast. And uh, it's it's kind of incredible, and he's got Allen Ginsberg there, who's like appearing and doing like a bit of poetry, like in right. the early like you know four months of the show, and then people just keep coming on, like Joni Mitchell and this and this, and Al. You see like chalkboards with Allen's bit being stripped down to like you just got. 30 seconds, Alan. Just go and wave at people. (laughs) And then by the end of the show, Alan and Peter Orlovsky are literally just carrying bags for the band. They're just like, you know, they've been kind of like relegated to like like just kind of like groupies. Just just kind of like it's an odd odd film, but wonderful. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I I don't doubt that every day of Bob Dylan's life is like that on the road. He's like, okay, I'm going to try this now. I'm going to do this now. And I saw him one time. I lived in LA for a very short time. And I heard that he owned a coffee shop in Santa Monica and that he would often be in there writing or reading. And I went one time, sure enough, he's sitting in the corner writing. (laughs) <laughs> nice. And I'm just like oh, sitting in a coffee shop having a mocha, and there's Bob over there. Didn't say anything to him. Yeah, it was like, no, he's won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He clearly reads a lot. You know, I think he's one of these guys who loves to play music, and that's why he's touring all the time. And he just, he's just a, I don't know, he just kind of like soaks stuff up like a sponge. And just kind of puts it back out there. You know, you get lyrics with hints of Blake and, you know, Walt Whitman and, you know, to pop commercials and, you know, Jimmy Reed. How about Murder Most Foul? Yeah, the new one. Timely, eh? I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. It's coming out June 19th. I I can't wait to hear it. Right? It's exciting. It's, you know, yeah, that, that song was out in March, and it's about the JFK assassination, mm-hmm. 
Where, where were you when JFK uh, was killed? I was in the first grade, and <laughs> I vividly remember the day, of course, uh, even though I was just first grade, you know, um, the principal. So six, came, years, six years old. Yeah. The principal came to the door and the, called the teacher out. She went out in the hall and she came in just blubbering, crying. And then they uh, gathered us all up and sent us to the auditorium and had an assembly and told us what happened and sent us all home. And uh, so the next few days, I mean, the whole country shut down. Yeah. Everybody was home watching all this stuff that I remember. I guess there were people that went to work, but I think it was just such a shock uh, that everybody was stunned into staying home. I remember the odd Kennedy vacation. Yeah. It was a dark day in Dallas, November 63. The day that would live on in infamy. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die He led to the slaughter like a sacrificial lamb He said, wait a minute, boys, you know who I am Of course we do, we know who you are Then they blew off his head while he was still in the car It's a, an odd song, though, isn't it? Murder Most Foul. It's kind of like in rhyming couplets. And I like that you have a... Nobel Prize for Literature winner who embraces almost cheesy rhyming couplets. And this is a song that's spoken entirely in these sometimes kind of weird rhyming couplets. You know, it's kind yeah. of like, he goes from, you know what I mean? Wolfman, oh, Wolfman, oh, Wolfman, how? Rub-a-dub-dub, it's murder most foul. It's kind of odd. It's kind of like, you know, and he mentions, you know, various ways of how he was shot in the head you know, over and over, it's kind of, it's... it's yeah, it's, it goes from gruesome to those lines like that, and then the next two lines, I think, they just captured me. When I heard it, hush, little children, you'll understand, the Beatles are coming, they're going to hold your hand. Yeah. That just sent chills down me. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, so what, it's, what is it? It's like a simple piano kind of, but it's kind of sat at piano. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like maybe a, a little violin in there. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating song. It's like 16 minutes. I'm really glad that this is coming out because, you know, I'm a Dylan fan and I was worried that, you know, he's getting on. He's 79 years old yeah. and you're kind of like thinking, are we going to have him kind of potentially die and his last few albums be these Frank Sinatra covers that he's been stuck on for like, what, five years? <laughs> I no, but, oh, come on. <laughs> Warren Zebon's last work is his best work, and I love Warren Right, Zee. I know, right. But I, you wouldn't say these last, you know, few Frank Sinatra <laughs> covers are anywhere near Dylan's best work. No, but... No, but this one, this, that's, why, that's why I'm hoping maybe this one will be. I mean, you know, yeah. If you look, you talk about last albums. I mean, I mean, Johnny Cash's last album, the oh, Amer- oh. American <laughs> Four, is incredible, right? Yes, all of those. Oh, no, Leonard Cohen's last album that was pretty good. You, you want it darker? That was that was a nice one. Yeah, I mean, if they know they're going and they're doing them, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, Even it is, yeah. John Prine's last album, I didn't oh, yeah. know it was out until he died. 
I missed the the, yeah, the fact that I'm a rabid John Prine fan. And to, to somebody's they're posting on Facebook the last couple of days, watch John Prine sing the last song he ever recorded, which I've done three times, you know, yeah. sitting there, tears rolling yeah. down my face. <laughs> so, yeah, Murder Most Foul, fabulous track. Anything yeah. else? Does he capture the moment? Well, you know, I think it really captures a transition in the country, you know, that went on uh, from, you know, the Eisenhower glory days on into where we ended up now along the way. And, uh, you know, I'm politically cranky these days, Andy. (laughs) We don't talk much politics on with confetti in our hair. Put a little bit out on my Facebook page, but I don't think I've ever been as blunt as I'm about to be. If you are a Trump supporter now, why? Why? I don't understand how that's possible, that this racist, Nazi, vile, sexist human has any worth (laughs) that can cause you to support him. If you do, there's that dark part of your soul. You've got to admit that you're racist with all that's going on right now in the world. All yeah. the protests, everything that's happening out there, yeah. I, I, I can't find a way to respect you. I'm surrounded by people like that, you know, and I just don't get it. I don't just sit down and take it, Yeah. but I'll always speak up when I hear somebody d- d- chanting, you know, any MAGA guy or yeah. girl. How are women even... <laughs> there, I don't, I don't, I don't understand, understand it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you, are you still okay with your neighbours? I, I guess, I, I, I imagine that um, where you are near Gatlinburg's pretty Trump country. Well, yeah, and every, and a lot of people that come here, I'm surrounded yeah, by them. Right. And I'm a certain age, but you don't look at me and think Trump supporter, though I see lots of people that look like me than do. I mean, I've got hair down below my shoulder blades and a long beard, goatee, and. Uh, I don't look like that. And every once in a while, some, somebody will chum up to me and start talking. And I just turn to them and go, I'm sorry, not a fan. Conversation is over. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's the way I handle it. If wow. I don't know them, if I do know them, they know where I stand. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, I don't understand how you can support this human. Right. I mean, I walk the planet loving Everybody, not hating anybody. Yeah. But I, I hate the things that we're experiencing under this vessel yeah. of just everything, just like the constellation of corruption that surrounds him, his COVID response that is just hundred and twenty thousand dead gonna be more. It's just endless. It's just I don't understand it. But you're in the you're in the trenches, man. You're in the front lines of the culture war. I'm in a liberal bubble. It's kind of you know I think that probably drives a lot of the podcasting is kind of screaming into the void a little bit. Yeah, uh, you know, and we purposely don't go there. Right. You can tell which way we lean, but we we try to stay completely looking through a window of goodness mm-hmm. at Tom Waits. I mean, the world has driven us to say some things, but we don't make direct statements there to talk about Tom. So it was funny. I mean, it was funny that Kennedy was killed. You know, after he gave the civil rights speech, I mean, he gave that in June, mm-hmm. and then he was killed in November. 
It's yeah. kind of hard, you know. It, I mean, yeah, there's so many conspiracy theories about why and who and and for what reason. But have you read Stephen King's book? I have. That's a good that, one. It is, and I'm not a Stephen King reader, but friends of mine gave it to me because they know <laughs> that I'm a reader and. I would like the subject matter. I liked everything but the ending, but I accept the ending. I, I loved the book. Yeah. And he yeah. had so many details in there, so many wonderful details. Yes. So what are some of your favorite episodes from the podcast? Well, as my favorites, I've named two already. Mm-hmm. I really love Noah's Ark, one and two. There's a It's divided into two. Uh, and traveling around the world, part one and part two, oh, cool. are excellent uh, episodes. I've listened to those. This is good recommendations. Yeah, yeah they uh, they're both. Is, I have too much on this subject, so we're going to do another yeah. one. You know, <laughs> um, I like beginnings, middles, and ends, and blood. Uh, there's one called Eyes, which I I just adore uh, nice. his selections of songs and everything that's in there. Mm, it's an excellent listen it's so good there's so much in there so being that you are uh you know the creator of the greatest tom waits podcast wow available i'm gonna set you up now for a problem oh no it's the future (laughs) Uh, okay (laughs) mankind and all its art has been flown to mars by elon musk and uh, the earth's burnt up and there's one repository left of all the yeah. music, and uh, it's about to get swallowed in a firestorm. Uh-huh. Uh, but you can, you can press a button and transmit the collected works of either Dylan or Tom Waits to oh. a floating spaceship. Uh huh. Which do you pick? <laughs> Tom Waits. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bob. <laughs> if that's my sole responsibility, that's not even. A, there's not even a, a zero and a one to flip. There we Which go. Which one is Tom? <laughs> there we go. Sorted. <laughs> I love Bob. I love him. That makes me cry that I have to leave his music here, but it's it's Tom all the way for me. It's okay, but there we go. So what are you going to give this? I normally like give it a star. Yeah, I, I, know, I know what you give it. Five stars? I give it five stars, two thumbs, and two big toes up. Nice. Yes. And a, um, what's the pillbox hat? Leopard skin pillbox hat. Yeah, I give it a leopard skin pillbox hat. Yay! Yeah, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Yes, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox Good luck, man. Hey, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Andy. Well, you must <laughs>
rich man when he's ailing Stays at home and calls the doc But the poor man has to go to work Be in time to punch a clock The rich man takes his medicine Has his doctors and his nurse So the rich man he gets better But the poor man he gets worse Steals a million from the bank that he controls While the poor man steals a loaf of bread Or a penny's worth of rolls They take them to the courthouse One is laughing, one's in tears Oh, the rich man gets an apology While the poor man gets ten years Deputy Dog and Magoo They just sat the president And we don't know who You owed the mob But you would not repent It was Joseph Aspidin Who invented cement Lyndon B. Johnson Is climbing into your shoes He's got a medal for Walt Disney Who doesn't like Jews They blew out your brains To cover a nation's sins you never got to dance with Mary Poppins. While J. Edgar Hoover wore woman's tights, you lost your head about civil rights. I'm singing real low, but it's really a shout. It's the current president that we should have taken out. I got nothing. I'm just lonely tambourine player. Hey, Judge. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Damn, kid. Leave me alone. Right. So in 2008, I find the letter again in one of my files. And I read it, and I have that, you know, oh, what could have been feeling. Um, but I start checking up a few things online because you know there's a lot more stuff on the internet now the internet's a great research tool now than what it was in nine in the in the late 90s and i discovered there's this new archive of 60s new york city um counterculture newspapers and fanzines and uh and, and a lot of collected stuff from uh the folk museum and they finally been digitized and I search for the name William Byron Bird, and it pops up. I find an obituary from April 1965. Incredible. Beloved street busker pulled from East River. William Byron Bird, 48 years old, from Poughkeepsie, New Jersey, missing for three days, was discovered by a fisherman on Friday. Known as the Tambourine Man by residents of the village, he often played with a joy and abandon on the corner of Clinton Street and will be sadly missed. So there we have it. I think I've got something real. A young Bob Dylan wrote Mr. Tambourine Man for an actual street busker he met in New York City. And then in some tragic way, probably with a misunderstanding, he presents the song to him this amazing ballad 
to the muses of dance and song. And this poor guy, this busker, thinks it's literally about him and can't handle it. I mean, you know, maybe he's got a history of mental illness and, and, and then he kills himself. Writes this note that I've got and throws himself in the East River. I mean, obviously I'm projecting a lot of ideas in there, um, but I think that's probably the most likely situation, rather than, you know, taking the suicide note at its face value that Dylan was actually chasing him around the streets. He was probably just haunted by the song coming from jukeboxes and windows around the village, and it, it probably did sound like him being mocked and followed everywhere. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. 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 And death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked, they shall be one with the man in the wind and the west moon. When their bones are picked clean and the clean bones gone, they shall have stars at elbow and foot. Though they go mad, they shall be sane. Though they sink through the sea, they shall rise again. Though lovers be lost, love shall not, and death shall have no dominion. And death shall have no dominion. Under the windings of the sea, they lying long shall not die windily. Twisting on racks when sinews give way, strapped to a wheel, yet they shall not break. Faith in their hand shall snap in two, and the unicorn evils run them through. Split all ends up, they shan't crack, and death shall have no dominion. So that's a wrap. If you enjoy the show, please spread the word and leave me a review on iTunes. And if you really want to help, click the link and buy me a coffee. The jazz is provided by the amazing Mario Robbins Intersome. I don't know who's providing your jazz, but I think you should switch to these cats. And they have a new album out soon. Check the link in the show notes and on the webpage. Andy's Podcast, a podcasting podcast, is sponsored by the American Shoe Council. Over 30,000 years of bipedal history. Shoes. How else are you going to protect your feet? Have a great week, everybody. Stay happy. Stay safe. Uh, bye.